A few years ago, we decided to buy an electric car. In the end, we went with a used Nissan Leaf. It's completely unexciting, it gets maybe 60 miles to a full charge, and it costs us about as much as a really high-end chef's knife. Anyway, the point is, while we were talking to the salesman in the dealership, he mentioned that a few years earlier, some eccentric rich guy went around buying these dinky little electric cars in bulk. The guy didn't give a damn about the cars themselves, they were an afterthought. What he wanted was the batteries inside. Turns out it's not all that straightforward to get your hands on massive batteries in bulk. And so this guy decided to buy up a bunch of cars that already had them, and then just ditch the cars. The reason the planet's burning up is, overwhelmingly, because we use fossil fuels. Those fuels account for about three quarters of all greenhouse gas emissions on the planet. Fortunately for us, there's other means of getting power. Means that don't turn the Earth into a furnace. Wind, solar, renewable energy. But there's a problem. We get wind power when it's windy, and solar power when it's sunny, and unless we can store that power, we're kind of in a bind. That's where batteries come in. Not the ones you put in your remote control, but rather their bigger siblings, the ones you'd find in one of those electric cars. Whatever our current conception of going green is, be it using electric cars or installing solar panels, it doesn't happen without big, expensive batteries. And that's an issue. Because not only do we need tons of natural resources to make those batteries, we quite literally don't have enough mining capacity in the world today. Meaning we'd have to build a whole lot more mines. And that's not exactly the most environmentally friendly way to save the world. This is Without. I'm Omar Lackhead. On today's episode, we look at batteries. Specifically the rechargeable, high-capacity kind. What happens if we can't make enough of them? And even if we can, should we? We'll look at the industries making them, the places recycling them, and the ground they're pulled from. All that, and a grade school science primer on what a battery actually is, coming up. Um, I just got off of I-20 East, and I'm about to turn Okay, Ascend Elements. This is Jade Abdul-Malik, a friend of the show. We sent her to Covington, a town about 40 miles outside of Atlanta, Georgia, to visit one of the biggest lithium battery recycling plants in America. That was the plan, anyway. Hi, I'm so sorry. She ended up getting lost. Uh, do you know where the entrance for Ascend Elements is? Who? Ascend Elements? The, the battery plant? A few more roundabouts, and she arrives at Ascend Elements, a massive factory that looks a bit like an airplane hangar from the outside. I think it's free. I think it means free in German or Swiss or something. Tom Frey, Ascend's head of PR, is there to greet Jade. He's got hard hats and his spiel at the ready. And this is our battery recycling facility, the first commercial-scale battery recycling facility that we've built in America. Um, and we recycle lithium-ion batteries here. Hey, okay, so what are we gonna see today? Yeah, so we'll go in and it'll be very noisy in there. Um, He's not kidding, as you're about to hear. And the reason it's very noisy is because they're shredding batteries. You know how you're not supposed to throw batteries in the trash? Well, there's a reason for that. 
Batteries, even the so-called eco-friendly ones, contain a lot of stuff. Toxic stuff. And recycling them isn't exactly straightforward. Which is where Tom and the rest of the folks at Ascend Elements come in. Recycling some of the biggest batteries out there, including the ones in electric cars and buildings that make use of solar power, for example. Essentially, what we do here is we receive manufacturing scrap from electric vehicle battery makers, but we process it and make it into brand new battery material. So, yes, we're keeping it out of landfills, but we are also putting it into brand new electric vehicles. As you'd imagine, it's a pretty large operation. We have the capacity in this plant to process 30,000 metric tons of batteries every year. That's about 70,000 electric vehicles. Wow. 70,000 electric vehicles is roughly a tenth of the electric cars sold in America last year. And that's a number that's expected to keep going up in the foreseeable future. But all those batteries are full of stuff that can be used again and again, long after the battery itself dies. What people always forget about is the battery manufacturing scrap. All these critical elements, cobalt, nickel, manganese, lithium, really valuable materials. You don't want to just throw those away. You don't want to Tom, formerly a reporter himself, has a knack for relatable comparisons. If you're ever making holiday cookies or Christmas cookies, when you're done cutting out your cookies, there's always some extra around the edges, right? So it's kind of the same with making batteries. There'll be scrap that's left over, and you don't throw that cookie dough out. What do you do? You flatten it out, you make another cookie. Let's use that snack break to pause for a second. If you're anything like me before I started working on this episode, you might not know how a rechargeable battery actually works. Yeah, you know it stores energy, which it discharges as electricity. But beyond that, could you describe what's actually happening? No? Well, here's someone who can. I do research on next-generation lithium-ion batteries for longer-life electric vehicles and power electronics and things like that. Okay, let's let Billy Wu have a go. Billy teaches at Imperial College in London. His work centers around electrochemical design engineering, which sounds pretty complicated, so maybe we should start with something simple. Like, can you please explain the plus and minus sides of the battery? What are those? There's a few key components in a battery. You have the negative half of your battery, which we call the anode. That's normally made of something like graphite. Um, where most of the valuable materials are right now are in the cathode, the positive half of the battery. And that's normally made of a combination of elements such as nickel, cobalt, manganese, uh, lithium, and so on. Okay, so we have the positive end and the negative end. What's happening in between? We also have a liquid called an electrolyte, which allows the lithium ions to kind of swim back and forth. Okay, cool. So we have the parts. But to describe how a battery works, Billy asks us to imagine a reading room, like the kind you'd find in a library or a fancy house. And you can think of how a battery works as kind of two bookshelves, which represent the anode and cathode, and lithium ions as books that you move back and forth between them. And that's where we extract useful electrical work to power your electric motor or your light bulb. And broadly speaking, uh, that's how a lithium ion battery works. And it's the books moving between them that represents the energy. Once all the books get to one shelf, it's time to recharge. But you'll notice one of the things that isn't moving books around in this analogy is fossil fuels. 
I think the exciting thing about this energy transition is that it's going to completely change so many industries because we are moving from a economy which basically burns fossil fuels, that's what we do right now, into one which is based around solar, wind, lithium, sodium, and that really changes how the world works. That's quite scary for some people where maybe your economy is based around selling oil and gas and, you know, wars have been fought over oil and gas. And now the new resource arguably might be lithium or wind or solar energy. And there's huge implications for who controls that, energy security, and so on. But there's a catch. Because while batteries might sidestep fossil fuels, they don't arrive out of thin air. The most popular element that goes into these things is lithium, a soft metal that's used in all kinds of stuff, from fireworks to industrial lubricant. Forms of lithium are used in medication for bipolar disorder. They were even used as fuel in some early atomic bombs. But today, by far the most popular use of the element is in batteries. Chances are there's dozens of things in your house that run on lithium-ion batteries, from your phone to your computer, maybe even your toothbrush. But the thing is, as popular as lithium has become, the vast majority of it is still underground. If you forecast how many lithium-ion batteries we need to fully electrify all of the world's electric vehicles, essentially we just don't have the minerals right now in terms of production volume to provide that. So I think in the next few years, there's going to be a massive shortfall in things like nickel, lithium, which are core ingredients of a battery. Which all raises a pretty uncomfortable question. Do we start massive new mining operations around the globe in order to unshackle ourselves from the extraction economy? How ungreen are we willing to let the road to a green economy be? That's after the break. How does AI even work? Where does creativity come from? What's the secret to living longer? TED Radio Hour explores the biggest questions with some of the world's greatest thinkers. They will surprise, challenge, and even change you. Listen to NPR's TED Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. All right, so let's go in over here. We'll have to get you with some protective equipment. No problem. To the recycling plant, that is. Okay. High yes. ladder vest, <laughs> the hard hat. That's our friend Jade and her tour guide, Tom. They're about to enter the heart of the factory, where the work of recycling lithium batteries happens. Perfect. The guys that are out there working with the material, they will have full respirators on. Okay. Just because they're working with it all day. Basically, the sand, the black sand that comes out of the batteries after we shred them up, we can uh, transform that black mass into brand new cathode material that goes into new electric vehicles. Okay, remember cathodes? Those are the positive side, the expensive side of the battery the part that's made of all those metals. And the metals aren't just pulled from dead electric cars. Tom's plant is an equal opportunity shredder. But we can also recycle 
cell phone batteries, laptop batteries, power tools, um, any type of lithium-ion battery. So it's a little bit louder in here. <laughs> the noise is pretty bad, but at least you're not also getting the acrid smell, which I'm told comes right up and greets you. Jade described it like unveiling the parts of a machine that weren't meant to be unveiled. Tom isn't phased, though, having developed a friendly shouting voice. So in the smell, what you smell there is materials in the batteries that create that smell, but we have a really uh, extensive circulation system. I mean, they sort of have to, even with massive ceilings. Jade said the space was so caked with the dust of shredded batteries she found the floor slippery. Um, this, this, this plant runs 24-7. We are recycling batteries 24-7. It's a lot of batteries to shred, and none of them are made or mined anywhere near a factory in Georgia. Most all the world's batteries, certainly the ones recycled at the plant, are made in China. And recently the Chinese government has ramped up its investment globally, from co-opening lithium mines in Zimbabwe to starting talks with the Taliban who are sitting on a potential mining location in Afghanistan. And that interest is displayed in the public. More people in China are driving electric cars than anywhere else in the world, with local EV makers like BYD competing with the likes of Tesla. But even though electric car sales are also soaring in the American market, the U.S. produces hardly any lithium at all. And without lithium, the batteries those cars run on, they don't function. The United States is not even on the map in terms of lithium production. We make about 1% of the mineral and maybe as much as 7% of the processing for lithium batteries gets done in the United States. This is Tim Crowley. He's from Reno, Nevada. And for a number of years now, Tim's been handling PR for Lithium Americas Corporation, a Canadian-based mining company. Specifically, Tim's job is to promote what will likely be the U.S.'s largest lithium mine. It's also in Nevada. Right below the Oregon border in Humboldt County, Nevada. I'm just curious, personally for you, what it's been like managing PR for for this project. Oh, it's a dream. It's such a great story. Nevada Lithium, or Lithium Americas, their parent company in Canada, came to Nevada almost a decade ago after hearing about a large lithium deposit in the state in an area known as Thacker Pass. The oil company Chevron actually passed on this land back in the 70s, a bit before the first rechargeable lithium batteries entered the market. But like I said, it's been about 10 years since Tim's employer came to Nevada. And yet, there's still no mine here. It's not open yet, and it might not be open for a while. I think oftentimes people think, well, to build a mine, how hard can that be? You you just start mining. Do people think that? I'm not sure. I mean, mining, like any large-scale project, has to go through a whole bunch of regulatory steps. A bureaucracy designed precisely to ensure you can't just start mining. But Tim says the Thacker Pass project is getting there, securing permits from the federal and state governments, as well as some support within some nearby communities. We're in construction today. We're excited to be at this point because up until now, it's something that we've thought of as a, as a theoretical project. We haven't made a dollar yet. Uh, we spent over $100 million. All of that capital has come from Lithium America's investors. General Motors, which currently owns 23% of the company, has a standing investment for $320 million, with another $330 million to come. In exchange for that, they will receive the first 10 years' worth of lithium mined at this location. 
That's a lot of Chevy Volts. Anyhow, the reason this mine has taken especially long to build has to do with where it is. It's on federal land under the control of the Bureau of Land Management. And the mine is projected to eat up about 18,000 acres of the sagebrush and rolling hills that line this part of the country. It's also not far from a community of people who are native to this place. A local tribe is called the Fort McDermott tribe. They're about a 50-mile drive, maybe 30 miles as the crow flies from our project. Zoning and purchasing BLM land is a process. State officials, national EPA regulators, and the surrounding tribes all need to come to some agreement. But we didn't get to that point without dialogue, and that started years and years ago. The Fort McDermott Paiute and Shoshone tribes and the lithium mine have worked out an understanding. In exchange for the support of the project, and the mine is projected to be active for 40 years once it starts, local tribes members are being offered well-paying jobs, a community center, and all kinds of other incentives. Our future families. Tim mentioned how the local school requires children cross the highway by foot to get to the activity center. It's a highway Nevada Lithium plans to use pretty frequently. So, the community's getting a new school. So we're moving that school. We're building a brand new one in a location that the community picked. We didn't pick it. And we're going to start construction of that school this, this fall. And the mine? We're projecting that we will go into production at the end of 2026. I don't know, man. It's This green colonialism has different arms and legs in it. It comes in, in different forms and different shapes. It's the green in this this particular picture means money. Gary McKinney is a member of the Duck Valley Shoshone Paiute tribe on the Idaho-Nevada border, about a five-hour drive from the mine. A few years ago, Gary was on his reservation when a colleague asked if he'd help her find a car. He wasn't really on social media at the time, but he'd heard about people selling cars and things on Facebook. So I, I signed up and got on there, and that was my reason for activating a Facebook started, you know, seeing things from my family over there about, um, about the lithium mine, and it, 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 it became a lithium thing. Today, Gary is very much on social media. He's the spokesperson for an anti-mining group called People of Red Mountain. He says he feels obligated to speak up. I'm a descendant of Oxam. He was my great-great-great-grandfather. On September 12th, 1865, the first Nevada Cavalry massacred more than 30 people in northern Nevada, just a few miles from Thacker Pass. Ox Sam was one of the few survivors. It's said that Ox Sam and some others escaped the massacre to an area near where Lithium Nevada wants to open its mine. You know, his cousins, his brothers, his sisters were all killed out there. The same blood that's out there being mined over is the same blood that runs through my veins. You know, it pumps through my heart as well. And... It's now under, under, under threat. While the Fort McDermott tribe and other tribes located near the project site have signed off on the Lithium Nevada mine, Gary and some others have remained wary. To be clear, Gary's not a tribal official. He's fighting the mine because this place is special to him. You know, I've camped out there at Thacker Pass under the stars and when before all this, this, this started happening, right? You know, there were times when I was the only one out there, you know, only one by the sacred fire, you know, doing the doing the sage, you know, using using what we had around us. 
It's not just about what a mine would do to this area, the damage it would cause. There's also a sense that the place itself is really two places. There's Thacker Pass the Mine, a multi-billion dollar project and a central part of Joe Biden's clean energy plan. But then there's the place that predates all lithium batteries, and even the name Thacker Pass. Before any of that, Gary says the land here had already been named by the indigenous people who live in the area. They called it, in the Paiute language, Pahimuha. You know, it rolls off your tongue. Mua it means moon, roughly translated to rotten or spoiled moon. You know, we, we'd rather have the way that we know it rather than the, the colonized name for it. And the colonized name for it is Stacker Pass. As you'd expect, the legality of these mining operations and all the land use, resource ownership, and waste removal issues that come with it, has been the subject of several court cases. But there's something particularly fascinating about exactly how those court cases are being fought. It turns out that the dispute over this massive mining operation at the heart of America's future battery production comes down to the interpretation of a Civil War-era federal law. A law that allows miners to claim and dig on public land while hardly paying anything for it. 1872 was when the, the general mining law came about, and that had, you know, donkeys, pickaxes, and shovels. And 151 years down the road, that same donkey rule, donkey law, is the one that's moving this green energy transition forward. And mind you, 1872 was before electricity. And based on what scant records we could find, likely just one year after the location was first publicly called Thacker Pass. The case Gary and others have brought to court isn't with Lithium Americas. It's with the Bureau of Land Management. The central complaint being about insufficient notification to tribes, such as the Shoshone Paiute, to which Gary belongs, and the historical relevance of this land. One of the other petitioners in the case was the Great Basin Resource Watch, an environmental protection group monitoring this area's land. John Hatter, the director of the group, understands how some people might view Lithium Nevada and Lithium Batteries as a path forward. There are definitely people who have called themselves environmentalists that see that we have to get these materials for the new technologies. And um, you may consider it bad, but there's going to be sacrifice zones. Um, and the folks that say there has to be sacrifice zones, I ask, well, what are you sacrificing? That area is now recognized um, as a cultural area. None of that is not even in the environmental impact statement. It's all of us that are responsible for, uh, you know, a changing climate. What are we doing? Um, just you know, going out and buying an EV, big deal. Uh, that's not much of a sacrifice compared to someone losing a piece of their culture. This July, the courts ruled in BLM's favor putting Lithium Americas one step closer to finishing the mine. We're, um, we're but back in my conversation with Tim Crowley, the mining company's PR guy, I wanted to know his view on all of this, and whether the talks with local tribes could ever have produced something that would have stopped the project. Can you give me a sense of, from your consultations, where the company stands on, on whether this, this really is a sacred site that, that shouldn't be touched? Where are you on, on consultations related to that? Sacred is in the the eye of the beholder. With 10 years of investment, with promises of material to fuel the future, with all these commitments to the tribes people, 
with millions already spent, is it even possible to assume anything could cause this company to back away? Am I, am I correct in, in understanding that the mine is a done deal either way? Like there's, there is nothing that's going to come out of those talks that's going to affect your company's position on actually engaging in this project. You're, you're absolutely wrong, and that's a completely flawed outlook. We didn't know what our project looked like 15 years ago, 10 years ago, when we were talking to the Fort McDermott tribe. We knew that we had something that we were going to pursue. And even today, when you would say, well, you must have this whole thing done. It's buttoned up. You've been working on it for 10 years. You never, ever know that it's a done deal. Did you expect when when you started working on this that it would be as sort of multi-pronged as it's been? Yep. (laughs) I'm done. Yep. There are no guarantees. You better go into that project with some understanding that this is not going to make everybody in society happy. Thing is, Tim's really good at his job, and he never really answered my question. I mean, sure, nobody knows what the future might bring and plans change and all of that. But that's not what I wanted to know. And so I asked him again, is there anything that could stop this project? I think that people know that this is big for society and that the benefits far outweigh the impacts of this project. And sure, there are impacts to this project. And if someone were to raise an impact today that said, this project should, should stop because of that. Um, that would, we're open to listening, but our goal is to fix those issues and, and move forward. So much for getting an answer to that question. When Tim talks about the benefits of this project, he's essentially presenting Lithium America's central talking point in favor of the mine. If we want to move away from fossil fuels to clean energy, we need more batteries. Those batteries need more lithium, and so the new lithium mine is actually a vital part of the green energy transition. But Tim's non-answer also got me thinking about something Gary, the Shoshone Paiute tribe member, said. Something that's a driving force behind his opposition to the mine. Can we ever really build enough batteries? Whether it's on this land or any other, is it really possible to mine our way out of environmental calamity? You know, this, this lithium isn't a fountain of youth, right? It's not going to undo all this harm that mining has already done to our lands. So are we really stuck between fossil fuels or just some other kind of extraction? Well, maybe not. After the break, how to make the most of the stuff we've already mined and make new batteries out of old ones. Politics has never been stranger or more online which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. 
Wish You Were Here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. Let's go back to the Ascend Elements Battery Recycling Center in Covington, Georgia, where Tom is showing our friend Jade the heart of the operation. Again, it's pretty loud in there. So this is our uh, our main battery recycling shredder. And as you see, it's a long conveyor belt of these steel rollers. Uh, and what we'll do is we will bring in, when we're running at full capacity, we'll have batteries loaded on this conveyor belt and they'll go up this ramp. And that ramp leads up to a very large shredder. And we will actually thread those batteries down into a very fine material. One of the really interesting things about the plant is that when the batteries first come in, they have to be drained of any excess charge before they're shredded. Imagine these huge batteries, shaped like flat planks, sometimes a few yards long, and each one weighing hundreds of pounds. And that extra charge, well, that's helping run the factory. Even the electricity is recycled. Everything has a home. We even recycle the plastics. So there's not any money in that. We actually probably lose money by recycling the plastics, but it's the right thing to do. Even though there are a handful of large lithium recycling plants either open or opening soon in the U.S., we're still a ways away from this kind of operation becoming the norm. But Tom's optimistic. Shouty and optimistic. Will we be able to have electric vehicles that are made with nothing but recycled battery materials? And the answer, I think, is yes. Not necessarily in the next 10 years, but in 20, 30 years, possibly. Usually on this show, we explore what a world without something would look like. But in this case, we're not suddenly going to run out of batteries, even lithium batteries. Instead, we're looking at a bottleneck, a withoutness that comes not because we use up every last ounce of lithium, but because we create a world that requires orders of magnitude more of it, more than our current minds can possibly provide. So what happens then? Well, for one thing, it becomes impossible to manufacture electric cars at a scale that will replace the number of gas cars currently on the road. It also becomes much more difficult to store power from solar and wind sources, sources you can't count on to produce power at a consistent rate. The transition to clean energy, which needs to happen as quickly as possible if we're going to avoid the most terrifying consequences of climate change, suddenly slows to a crawl. I think one of my major concerns is that obviously right now people are talking about electrifying everything, which I think has a lot of attraction. That's Dr. Billy Wu, the battery researcher from Imperial College. But we should also think about ourselves as a uh, society and how we actually behave. The point he's trying to make is pretty straightforward, and it sort of encapsulates the whole issue here. Technology alone isn't going to save us. It's certainly not going to save traditions or histories. It's not a question of whether we can produce more lithium. We can. We can mine tons and tons of this material that is central to green energy. We won't be without it anytime soon. The question is, should we go without it? When we spoke with Tim Crowley, the Thacker Pass Mine PR guy, he said we can't just go back to horses and buggies, and that this is what the anti-mining activists are essentially calling for. If we follow that path, he said, our medical system would collapse. Basically, civilization itself would collapse. Now, is that hyperbole? Absolutely. 
Tim's pay to defend the mine, and this is his strongest line of defense. But it does raise an interesting question. What are we willing to sacrifice in lieu of fundamentally changing how our society operates? The land? Indigenous history? Morality? And there is, of course, a flip side to that question. If we're not willing to sacrifice these things, what are we willing to do without? More lithium mines for our batteries, more raw material to power our endless supply of green gadgets. In many ways, it comes down to a fairly simple calculus. The lithium debate is just one example of it. Is there anything we value above our own convenience? Without is a production of Hyperobject Industries and Sony Music Entertainment. It's written and hosted by me, Omar Alakad. It's executive produced by Claire Slaughter and Harry Nelson. This episode is produced by Emil Klein, with on-location assistance from Jade Abdul-Malik, and editorial assistance from Abby Fentress-Swanson. Our associate producers are Fendel Fulton and Kendra Hanna, with production support from Zaley Mahone. Our theme music, sound design, and mixing is by Joanna Katcher at Nice Manners. And our research is by Sarah Mathis. See you next week. <laughs> yes, the hard hat. Want, Hopefully my head this, isn't too big. <laughs> we want to keep you safe. No, I'm sure it'll be fine if, if my head can fit in there. <laughs> okay, perfect. Right. Does that work? My head is so large. <laughs> okay, fits. Okay, that works. That fits. Yes. Yeah.